0: Would you like to have your seats? And I'm going to invite Meg up. He's going to come and read to us um, our Bible reading this evening. It's from 1 Samuel 18, if you want to flip your Bibles open. And we're going to be reading verses 1 to 11, and then 20 to 30.
1: After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him. And did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, uh, his his bow and his belt. Whatever Saul sent to and um, sent him to do, David did it so successfully. That Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people, and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul, and singing and dancing with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They had credited, they have credited David with tens of thousands. He thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day is evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp as he normally, as he usually did. Saul had his spear in his hand and he held it saying to himself I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Now we go into verse 20. Now Saul's daughter M- Michael was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be as near to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, Now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, Speak to David privately and say, Look, the king is pleased with you and his attendants all like you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, Do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, the king wants no other prize for the bride than a hundred Philist- Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. When the attendant told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented their full number to the king, so that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter Michael in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known.
0: Thank you very much, Meg. Shall we invite Philip to come and talk us through that a bit more? Now, it's my understanding that Phil was in another country this morning and has somehow managed to arrive here by means of road, which leads me to question whether the speed limit was observed fully, which I shall, of course, be picking up with him and his car later. But uh, points of traffic law aside, let's pray for Phil, shall we? Thank you, Lord, for Phil. Thank you for his his commitment to your gospel and to the teaching of your word. Thank you um, that it goes so far that he's teaching in two different countries on one day. Father, we pray for energy for him where he's tired. And we ask that you would inspire him through this passage uh, to inspire us to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Brilliant.
2: Well, it is good to be here. If you could have your Bibles open to that passage, I'm going to um, explain a bit, a bit from it now. One of my favorite rounds on the TV uh, quiz program, A Question of Sport, is the What Happened Next round. For those of you who've, who've not seen A Question of Sport, the way it works is that a clip from a sporting event is shown to each of the teams, and then for each team it's paused at a point just before something out of the ordinary happens. The team then has to guess what happened next. Some of the things that happen next are impossible, some are hilarious, others are just downright weird. Now, when I was in Sunday school we would be told the David and Goliath story frequently, but rarely would we be told about what happened next. But if we follow the story, we're told what happened next, which means it's important for us to know. Otherwise, it wouldn't be here. And it's definitely a what happened next of the weird variety. We've got stories of clothes swapping, of wife gambling, of foreskin collecting, which is not what you'd expect to happen after David and Goliath. But we need to read this section of the book because the writer has put it here for us. And therefore, we've got to ask that question, why has the writer put such a weird bunch of stories immediately after one of the greatest stories ever told? This is a passage that tells us how people responded to God's anointed king who had just announced himself on the battlefield. In other words, the challenge is this. When you hear about God's anointed king, he provokes a response, either positive or negative. And our passage shows these two responses quite clearly. So the first response is Jonathan surrenders to God's king. Jonathan surrenders to God's king. As soon as he'd finished speaking to Saul, the son of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. This is verse one. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day Um, And would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. What's going on here? Well, Jonathan's heir to the throne. He's Saul's son. He was a believer in God and he had all the signs that he was the rightful heir to the throne of Israel, someone whom God loved, someone who loved God. And he treats David like his soulmate and his king. First one is striking in, in describing someone who shares the blessing of brotherhood formed by a common passion for the glory of God. Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And you've got these two great warriors of the Bible, men who had led Israel in battle, and their hearts resonate together. Why? Because they passionately love God. But even more than that, Jonathan saw in David that David was God's anointed king who had come to rescue his people so that they might have a relationship with God. So despite being next in line to throne... Jonathan gives David every symbol of his office, his sword. That was a big one in those days, his armor, his cloak. The cloak was a special cloak, a special heir to the throne coat, cloak. It was Jonathan's by right. He, in wearing it, was saying, I am by right the heir to the throne of Israel, So by taking it off, he's declaring to everyone, I give up my birthright to the king, the rightful king. He gives it up to God's anointed. It reminds me of a story about Lord Nelson at the Battle of the Nile after the French had run up the white flag to surrender. The story goes that at that point, all the guns fell silent And a boat was lowered into the water for the French admiral, who was rowed over to Nelson's flagship to surrender formally in person. The admiral boarded Nelson's ship in full dress uniform with his sword and and, and all his his brocading and everything down his uniform. And he extended his hand as a sign of submission uh, and surrender to Nelson. He walked over and extended his hand. But Nelson, still dressed in his battle gear, not having washed, not having made any ceremony of it, stopped the admiral there and said to him in his clearest voice, for all to hear, your sword first, sir. Your sword first, sir. And as the admiral unbuckled his sword and laid it in front of Nelson, it was only then that Nelson extended his hand to accept the admiral's surrender. It's a story that illustrates what surrender looks like. And it's incredible that it mirrors what Jonathan does here. What he says, in effect, is I am the rightful heir to the throne of Israel, but I surrender it all to the rightful king of Israel, the one whom God has anointed, the one who loves God even more passionately than I do. Why do I know that? Because our souls resonate with that same passion. So the only right response to David is what uh, what, what Jonathan does. He loves him, and he surrenders everything to him. There is no fight. There is no terms of agreement. There's no sense in which I say, oh... David, um, I tell you what, if I let you have all my stuff, will you let me have a, a little vineyard somewhere in Israel or a little plot of ground where I can grow a shed load of crops? If, 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 David, if you're king, can I be your kind of second-in-command kind of bloke? Because then I'll give you all my stuff. No, no, Jonathan does not do that. His entire life, everything, sword, bow, armor, cloak, everything that, that, that indicates he's a man of something, everything is given to King David. That was Jonathan's response to David. The other response, really, there are a couple in this, this passage, but I'm just going to focus on these two. The other response is, is Saul. Response Saul. Response to Saul didn't want God, God's king. Saul didn't want God's king. So Saul's response to David seems to be the same as Jonathan's at first. Uh, David went out, verse five, and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul sent him, uh, set him over the men of war, and this was a good. This was good in the sight of all the people, and all, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So Saul kind of initially accepts David, he likes what David's doing, everybody loves him, so basically what he says, so if everybody loves uh, uh, David, then if I honour him, then people are going to love me. So in effect, what he's trying to do is control David, the rightful king, without submitting to his lordship. And unlike Jonathan, who gives everything to David, Saul grows jealous as God's hand on David becomes more and more obvious. In verse eight, he he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me, they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul kept a jealous eye on David from that day on. And then we're told that Saul, in in a demonic rage, tries to kill David. Do you know That's normal demonic behaviour. You look at the word, the work of the demonic right through the Bible, and what you see is spirits who want to destroy everything God has made and stands for. You see that in Mark chapter five. Um, There we're told that Jesus lands on the shores of the Gadarene area, and immediately he's met with a hostile demonic opponent. And when Jesus asserts his authority over the demons, they beg him. To allow him to possess, to allow them to possess a, a herd of pigs nearby. And when Jesus gives permission for those demons to, to, to possess those pigs, they just kill them. Like that. It's all the demonic knows how to do. There's no goodness in demons. There's no kindness. There's no compassion. There's no grace. There's no love. There is only destruction and hatred. And just as a side, that's why it's, it's, it's really, really important not to take the demonic lightly. Or to believe what our world tries to say about the demonic in order to make sense of the demonic without reference to God is naive. Demons still exist today. And in this passage we're shown the demonic wants God's king dead. But as we move through the passage, we're told how Saul's jealousy increases. And then even in his sane moments... He tries to plot David's death. So he finds out his daughter, Michael, is, is in love with David. Uh, she, by the way, just as, a, again, a little aside, she kind of loves the hero but doesn't love the king. And you see that as, if you want to follow a story of, of someone who, 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 who wants the king on her terms, you follow the story of Michael. She loves the hero but doesn't want the king. Anyway, she falls in love with him, and so Saul hatches a plan to get him killed. Verse 21, Saul thought, let me give her to him so that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And verse 25, then Saul said, thus you you shall say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So he's got it all figured out. He knows that statistically, hand-to-hand combat is likely to get someone killed. So he does a quick calculation and, and tries to work out how many battles, ambushes, skirmishes it would probably take for one of them to go wrong and get David killed himself. That's why he demands that number of Philistine foreskins. Now, just for those who don't know, a foreskin is a flap of skin that covers the tip of a man's penis. So basically, it's not something that's going to be given up lightly. David had to kill that number of Philistines, then chop off the required bits, and take them back to Saul within the allotted time. It's a a mad nut job task, isn't it? I mean, really, you, you know that Saul wants David killed because he's given this just completely, seemingly random task to do. It's dangerous. The likelihood of it killing David was very high. And then just to add a bit of je ne sais pas to the, to, to the, to the game, he, he puts a bit of time pressure on David. Do it in the allotted time, he says. But spiritually speaking, let me be very clear here. Spiritually speaking, Saul's place is a worrying place to be because in all his scheming, he is planning against God's plans, but he can't see that. Do you get that? He's playing the numbers game against the one who controls the numbers. In essence, he's fighting God. He's trying to kill God's king and work his own plans. It reminds me of a friend I had at school who once tried to play the statistics game with God. I remember very clearly talking to him about Jesus a number of times. And he used to say to me, in the confidence of youth, I'll live my life, Phil. I'll have a good life. And then when I get older, I'll do the God thing when it becomes important. He seemed to think that he could plan against God's plans for him. And later on that year, September 1988, Justin didn't come back from the school holidays. He died in a jet ski accident. What saddens me is that he had played the odds against the one who controls the odds. Like Saul, he lost. Like Saul, he believed he had more control over his life. But again, Against the backdrop of of both these two responses, the response of Saul, the response of Jonathan, it's wonderful to see that David all the time increases in strength and power and influence. And that is the nature of God's plan for God's king. Really, it is. it's, It's like a steamroller. God's plan for God's king is like a steamroller you're just not going to stop it once it's got going. And if you try and stand in the way, if you try and make the one who owns the steamroller do what you want him to do, it's not going to end well. Saul's proven that. And countless of people through history have proven that. They've tried to stand against God's king, the communist regime of Russia and China have tried to stand against God's king and all they've done is seen God's, king, God's king's kingdom advance in their countries. That's the nature of God's plan for his king. But the question this passage raises is, How are we going to respond to God's king? The the original readers of this passage were Jewish exiles in a foreign country called Babylon. They were thousands of miles away from Israel. And they lived hundreds of years after David. And they were in exile because their ancestors had just done us all. They tried to oppose God's king. They'd rejected God's lordship over them and instead turned to false idols. And God has sent them in, in his anger and in his judgment. He would decided to, to bring a, a, an army into Israel that actually meant they all just were taken away to foreign countries. That was God's judgment on an Israel that rejected God's lordship over them. But those original readers who were living, they, they, were, they were living in a promise of God. A promise that one day God would send them a king like David, whose kingdom would grow, who would win the hearts of the nations and lead his people with love and power. And the question that has, would have been on their hearts, which is the question that ought to be on ours, our hearts, is this. When we see God's king is God's king, how are we going to respond? To be a bit clearer, when we realize that Jesus is God... Because he is God's king come into this world. When we realize that he is the one who will, we will have to talk to when we die and stand before God, how are we going to respond to him? Saul responded badly. He lived in his secular world, wanting God's king dead, trying to play God without realizing only God can do that. And when he wasn't plotting David's death, he was wanting to control David, using him for his own purposes to win the approval of the people around him. Is that us this evening? Are we trying to use God? For example, do we come to church because we like church? It makes us feel good, feel accepted. It makes us feel we're not judged here. Or, 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 or do we come because actually it's no use arguing with our parents, I'll just come to keep the peace, deal with it. It might be that we're resisting Jesus' lordship over our lives like Saul did with David. It might be that you're young and secretly waiting for the day when you go off to university or college and lose yourself in a secular worldview. Let me remind you, let me remind us all this evening. In David, there is an echo of God's coming king because even greater than David, Jesus is too amazing just to be another bloke he's too majestic just to be normal he's too authoritative just to be influential he's too powerful just to be historical his kingdom is too big just to be political do we see Jesus tonight will we respond well to him and submit to his lordship in a way that Saul never could for many of us here, we've realized that the right response to God's greater king is to do what Jonathan did, to give our lives in total love and commitment to his holy will, to surrender our, our desire to be king in his place over our lives, to stop fighting him and immerse ourselves into loving him. It might be that we've wandered away from God. Well, come back to him. It might be that we've allowed a particular sin to dominate us and we don't know how to get back to God. Well, talk to Jesus. Find strength and compassion and love and joy in his presence. Allow him to give you the strength to get up from your uh, failures that haunt you and follow him. That's the fellowship that Jonathan found in David's love. There it is. If you want to do a, 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 a quiet time tomorrow morning, look at Jonathan tomorrow morning. Go to 1, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18 and just read, just read how, how Jonathan loved David and found such love in David. And read those verses and ask the Lord Jesus Christ to be the lover of your soul. Ask the Lord Jesus Christ to accept your surrender and give him all your pet sins, your attitudes in school or in work, your rebellion against parents, perhaps even against church. Give it all to the great King of Kings and ask him that we would understand what that bond between Jonathan and David was like in a much greater way, not just between Jonathan and David, but between us and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that God's King has come, how will we respond to him?